Today's scripture reading is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in the bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for uh, just the worship that we've experienced thus far. Uh, thank you for um, all that has taken place. I pray, Father, that you would allow us to dive into your word so that we can see you more clearly. Uh, we beg you to speak. We beg you to minister, Holy Spirit. We pray, Father, that you would just manifest yourself here by opening up our eyes and our hearts to the preaching of your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, generally, uh, when new ideas are introduced and they are revolutionary or different, uh, they are rejected. Whether it's something uh, as serious as the idea that the earth is round and not flat. <laughs> Uh, we know in the 6th century B.C. when that was first introduced and later on when Aristotle uh, doubled down and emphasized that more, that was rejected. Or whether that's the idea that, uh, uh, that the earth resolves around the sun. Or whether stuff dealing with pop culture, uh, such as movies, E.T., uh, Back to the Future, Star Wars, all have the same thing in common in that when they first were introduced, of the production companies after seeing the finished product weren't excited about it. And it was actually rejected later on to become a cultural phenomenon. Or even things like the airplane or drums being played in church. Uh, new ideas, especially when they are revolutionary, are often, often rejected when you, first, when you first hear them. And in many ways, Jesus Christ as a person, Jesus Christ and his teachings in the first century, uh, Judea, uh, was rejected. In fact, the very gospel that we're reading, the gospel of Matthew, by the end of the book, uh, we see that Jesus is going to be crucified. Uh, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' life uh, stood in opposition against the spiritual leaders of that day. Jesus was unlike any other human being, any other teacher, in that not only did he teach a revolutionary message, but he also modeled a revolutionary lifestyle. Um, he hung out with the marginalized, the broken, the uh, rejects of society. He made friends with tax collectors who were like criminals, criminals and zealots, uh, people who would have been considered to be like terrorists. He spent time with, with prostitutes. He was accused of being a, a drunkard. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, we see that the religious leaders are going to call him Beelzebub, which is the prince of demons. Uh, Jesus was rejected because he was so revolutionary. He was so 
amazing. And part of Jesus being revolutionary and Jesus being so amazing was that Jesus was constantly having to pull his disciples aside and explain to them in greater length what he meant when he said certain things and what he did mean. He was constantly having to speak to them and say, this is what is being said about me, but this is who I am, and this is what I am about. And in today's text, if we understand what Jesus is doing here in these short few verses, um, then we'll understand this powerful sermon that we know as the Sermon on the Mount uh, better. And we can, we, can be, we can be changed from the inside out. We can continue to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. What Jesus is doing here, what he is laying out before us is a pathway to life. It's a pathway to joy. It's a pathway to happiness. It's a pathway, pathway to flourishing. He is putting meat on what he had just recently proclaimed, these blessed attitudes. These attitudes that, that are attitudes of flourishing, these, these values that are countercultural, these values that, that are belong to those who are part of the kingdom of God, this upside-down kingdom. What Jesus is about to teach us over the next couple chapters is what does it mean to live wholeheartedly? What does it mean to experience wholeness? In life, what does it mean to be salt and light? How does one end up there? Now, when I say wholeheartedness, keep it in mind the sum of Jesus' teaching and how he himself described uh, the greatest commandments in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 38. Where he says that the greatest commandments, all the law, all the prophets can be summed up in this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself. When I speak of wholeheartedness, I'm talking about what does it mean to, 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 to truly pursue God with integrity of heart. To live from the inside out. When I speak of wholeheartedness, I speak of it with, with, with passion. And Jesus taught it uh, with, with zeal because half-heartedness leads to spiritual failure. Half-heartedness leads to kind of faking it until you make it. Half-heartedness leads to you living in such a way that you care more about what people think about you than you're standing before God. Wholeheartedness is the way is the way to abundant life. In order to have wholeheartedness, Jesus is going to show us, uh, we could take three things from this text. And the first is this, that we experience wholeheartedness through a proper view of Scripture. The second is going to be that we experience wholeheartedness through a proper view of self. And thirdly, we experience wholeheartedness through a proper view of, of our Savior, Jesus. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, wants to set the record straight because he is living in such a revolutionary way. He is doing things that have not been done before. And remember where he is. He is on a mountain. And remember what Matthew is doing. 
Matthew is showing us how Jesus is like Israel, but actually he's better than Israel. Jesus is like Israel in that just as Israel came up out of Egypt, Jesus, Matthew chapter 2, came up out of Egypt. Just like Israel was baptized, metaphorically speaking, by walking through dry land uh, as the Red Sea was split in two, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Just as Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness and uh, what was supposed to be a 40-day trip ended up being 40 years uh, as they fell uh, to, to, to temptations of the enemy and they failed to test Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, but he succeeded. Just as Israel had 12 tribes, Jesus is going to call out 12 disciples. Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is the very embodiment of the Old Testament. In fact, one theologian, I believe we have it on the screen, he says this about the Old Testament in relation to the new, Bishop Rob. He says, the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud. The New Testament is the gospel in full flower. The Old Testament is the gospel in the blade. The New Testament is the gospel in full ear. Jesus has come to set a new covenant before his people. And just like Israel, how they gathered around Moses as he came off Mount Sinai and received a covenant, Jesus has gathered a, a people out of darkness. A people in chapter 4 who were literally blind, deaf, and many were dumb. Jesus gave them sight, opened their eyes, and gave them the ability to talk. He has taken the marginalized and the least of these in society, and he has taken them, and he's going to use them to confound the wisdom of this world. But he has some things he wants to clarify. And what does he want to clarify? Verse 17, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. What's the law? The law is the Torah. First five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was in large considered the law. Now, a lot of times when we hear law, we think of judicial systems, we think of a judge, we think of a, uh, all these different things. We maybe even think of commandments, and that is a part of the law. But holistically, when Jesus speaks of the law, he's not just talking about commandments. He's talking about a covenant. The law was a message of how the sovereign God of the universe cut a covenant with Abraham that he would be a, the seed of Abraham's God and they would be his people. The prophets pointed to a kingdom that was going to come. A kingdom that was going to come from the lineage of Abraham and from the lineage of David that would be light to the nations. And Jesus said, I have not come to abolish. I have not come to eradicate. I have not come to suspend the law. I am not here to undermine Moses or Elijah or anyone else. What I have come to do is to fulfill it. Literally, to make it full. Jesus will fulfill the law by one, perfectly keeping it. Jesus will fulfill the law by teaching it. And Jesus fulfills the law because he is the divine embodiment of the law. John puts it this way in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the Logos of God. He is the word of God. He is the full embodiment of everything that God has spoken. So when the Pharisees were looking at Jesus and concluding that Jesus was 
undermining the law. It wasn't Jesus that was missing the law. It was the Pharisees that was misinterpreting the law. Jesus is like, I wrote the law. I own the law. I am the law. <laughs> and here we see that Jesus is, is upholding it with its most deepest integrity. He has a high view of Scripture. And if you want to live wholeheartedly, if you want to experience wholeness, if you want to experience joy, if you want to experience peace, if you want to experience the love of God, you experience it by holding the word of God in highest regard. God's word is not what needs to change. We need to change. We don't stand on top of the word. We don't stand beside the word. We submit and surrender under the word. Now here's the thing. Jesus is going to say something that's pretty shocking here. Look at verse 18. He says, It's truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth has passed away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Look at how he's holding it, the law, in highest integrity, and he's saying that it will not pass away. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is upholding the scripture with the highest view. And then to his listeners, there would have been tension in their heart because the Pharisees and the scribes were the superstars of their day. The Pharisees and the scribes is who you want to grow up to be like, right? These are the, the holy people. These are the ones who are set apart. These are the ones who know the law of Moses inside and out. These are the ones who wore their long white robes and who could pray long, long, beautiful prayers before people. These are the ones who were tithing and, and seemed to be excited about everything. These were the ones who was kind of sitting high and looking low at everyone else. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you don't have a chance at the kingdom of God. But it's interesting. That the crowds are going to hear Jesus preach in such a way that they are going to conclude something that they've never concluded about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Which makes me think that perhaps their righteousness wasn't really all that righteous to begin with. In Matthew chapter 7, the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we read these words. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished. Some translations say they marveled. They were awestruck at his teaching. Because he was teaching them like one who had authority. And not like their scribes. In Matthew chapter 12, we see that Jesus is uh, the Sabbath. He's been doing ministry with the other disciples, and they're walking through a field, and they're hungry, so they begin to pick some grains from the field. And we see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come up to Jesus, and they are angry because he appears to be abolishing the law, not keeping the law. 
And then right after this, Jesus heals a man who has a withered hand. He probably hadn't been able to use his hand for years, or maybe he was even born with the inability to use it. And the Bible says that Jesus heals this man's hand that was withered. This hand that was useless, this hand that couldn't hold anything. Jesus just heals it on the Sabbath. And the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they lose their mind. We read this. It says, but, but the Pharisees went out and they plotted against him how they might kill him. They plotted on how they were going to murder Jesus, how they were going to take him out. Now, how righteous is a religious person if they want to kill someone for killing someone? Maybe the Pharisees, maybe the scribes, maybe the religious leaders, maybe the, the superheroes of Jesus' day, the spiritual superheroes, weren't really righteous as we think. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus, after he had spoken many blessings to his disciples, like what we read and preached through a couple weeks ago, Instead of pronouncing blessings, he's going to pronounce woes. And these woes aren't to his disciples. These woes are to the Pharisees. And all the woes are getting at this. The Pharisees have what Jesus calls an external righteousness. He says, you all are clean on the outside. He called them whitewashed tombs. He says, but on the inside, you are, you are dead man bones. He said, how is it that you are able to tithe off of the, the off of spices? They literally were tithing off of spices. They would lay out spices and take 10% and give it back to the Lord. But he says, but, but the weightier things of the law, like justice and mercy, you miss. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they really did not have a high view of Scripture. Here's what they had. They had a legalistic view of Scripture. Which meant that they looked at the scriptures and they looked at the laws and they decided to interpret the scriptures in the most convenient way possible for them. They interpreted the scriptures in a way that would allow them to be externally uh, pleasing to people. That would allow them to externally seem holy and righteous while inside never truly giving their heart to God. And that's why God, when he walked amongst them, wasn't recognized by them. You can, you can have all of the external religion in the world and still be far away from God. You can tithe, you can come to church, you can memorize the Bible, you can do good deeds and still not be known by him. What God is after is not half-heartedness. He is after all of you and me. And the way in which we have that is by having a high view of Scripture. That means that we avoid legalism. We avoid finding areas of Scripture that we are good at and making and building our Christian life around it while ignoring the areas that we're not and giving ourselves excuses or reasons on why we can't pursue holiness in that area. Jesus had two, two types of people in his, in his audience, even as he was preaching this. Two disciples. One is a man by the name of, of Simon. Uh, a friend of mine, J.T. English, pointed this out so well. He said Simon was a, a zealot. Literally a terrorist against the Roman 
government. He believed that the kingdom of God was going to be ushered in through, through violence. So they were literally assassins. And they would have considered themselves devout Jews, devout Jews. They lived according to the law of Moses. But somehow they were able to murder people. And then you had Matthew, who was the author of this book. And Matthew was a tax collector. And Matthew was unlike the zealot in that they were not zealous for the law in that way. But he, uh, though considering himself a faithful Jew, thought it was okay to unjustly tax people above and beyond to make a living for himself. A high view of the scripture does not happen when we zero in on the areas that we want and be legalistic about it and, and, and have everyone else try to live up to our version of Christianity. And neither does it happen when we water down the word so that we uh, can do whatever we want. The high view of scripture is we do what Jesus says. We honor the word as the word, but we also see the true meaning of the word. And the purpose of the word is not to be lived out in a way that makes us feel more prideful about ourselves. The purpose of the law, part of it, was to reveal God's holiness and then to help us to have a right perspective of ourselves. Listen, what Jesus is about to do over the next two chapters is absolutely genius. Specifically, what he's about to do from verses 17 through 48, this gives me chills. It's like lying in I mean, he's just so brilliant. Listen, he's going to give us six case studies. And what he's going to do in these case studies is show us how the Pharisees interpreted the law. And how actually in inter the way that they interpreted the law was not holding to the integrity of the law. It was not true righteousness at all. And then he's going to show us the deeper righteousness, the deeper meaning of the law. And what he's about to do is he's about to blow the categories of his disciples' mind. Because he's going to show them that spiritual life does not look like the Pharisees. That spiritual life actually looks radically different. And so six times, and we'll look more deeply at each of these uh, case studies over the next few weeks, but six times, he's going to lay out the same formula. And here's how it looks. Look at verse 21. You can look on the screen. Or if you have a Bible, you can look at your Bible. He says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors. Now remember, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, over and over by Satan, he said, it is written. He was directly quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. Well, Jesus here is going to say, you have heard. And what he's doing here is he's showing that what the Pharisees are teaching, that part of it is from the law. But they are misinterpreting the law. So he's going to hold the essence of the law up as a model, but also show how their misinterpretation and application of the law is not good. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to the judgment. So this is true. This is what the law says. But Jesus is about to get to the deeper meaning of the law. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister 
will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Stay with me. We're more than halfway done. Jesus says your Pharisees, your religious leaders walk around and they tell you don't murder. And then they walk around with this spiritual pride and arrogance because they haven't murdered anybody. It's like with the intent of the law wasn't just to deal with this external behavior of murder. The intent of the law was to get to your heart. The intent of the law was to address the, the deeper issues like, like anger that leads to murder. Jesus in essence is saying you sin when you are holding a grudge against your brother or sister. You sin when you use words against your brother or sister, people who are created in the imago Dei, in the image of God, when you use words to tear them down. And so if you're sitting on this mountain and you're hearing this, you realize that what Jesus has just done is actually hold the law of Moses with not only greater integrity, but he's actually made it more heavier to carry. Let me give you another thing. Let's see. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustily has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Man. So Jesus says, your Pharisees, your religious leaders, they tell you don't commit adultery, which is true. But the deeper meaning, the deeper righteousness of the law is not only do not commit adultery, it's not just the external behavior, which by the way, not committing adultery uh, to uh, the Jewish person, which it was, it was right and it was good. It also was a benefit because uh, adultery back then, uh, especially uh, early on in the days of Moses, it meant that you would be stoned to death and killed. <laughs> so there, there are some incentives in Jewish culture to not be caught committing adultery. Jesus said, it's all, that's good. Don't commit adultery. But let me tell you something that's, that's actually deeper in what, what God is actually after. It's not just adultery. It's looking lustfully after a person who is not your spouse in your heart. So if you're in that audience, man, you are slowly moving your feet back. And your amens start to turn into ouches. And Jesus is just warming up. I'm going to give you one more. Hmm. Let's look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, look at what the religious leaders are doing. This is what they're teaching. Because their teaching was convenient to them. The law clearly says, love your enemy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, for the Pharisees, a love of their neighbor, neighbors that they liked, were easy. So they loved their neighbors that they liked. But what they did is, is that they found a way to excuse them hating people that they did not like, like the Samaritans. They actually would travel and avoid going through Samaria. They were, they were racist. And what Jesus is addressing is the deeper heart issue. He's saying, no, when God said love your neighbor, he actually meant the ones that are hard to love. 
What is Jesus doing here? Besides doing open heart surgery on us all, what Jesus is doing here is he is showing his disciples that the only way and their only hope for being in the kingdom of God is in them realizing that they in and of themselves cannot please God. That human strength and ingenuity is not the answer. That they in and of themselves are wicked and have hearts that are unable, unable to do the things that God demands. And this is right where Jesus wants them because this is exactly why Jesus came. The Pharisees have set up a way of living in religion that is so externally focused that it makes people believe that they are actually right before God when they were far from Him. Jeremiah 17 and 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is incurable. Who can understand it? Later on in Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah is going to give a promise. Listen to this promise. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord declares and said, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration, I will put my teachings within them and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This was a promise that was given hundreds of years before to the prophet Jeremiah that the time was coming where Israel would have heart surgery, where God will give his people a new heart for him, where he will write his covenant upon their heart, and where those who belong to him will recognize that they have been forgiven of sin, and they will be empowered from the inside to live lives of radical obedience and radical abandonment by grace through faith. And this was the work of God. This is what Jesus talked about when he came to, uh, 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 when he came, uh, to Nicodemus in John chapter 11. And he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Jesus is teaching this audience and teaching this crowd that their only hope for salvation and entering into the kingdom of God is by receiving a new heart, is by receiving forgiveness of sin. That their only hope in flourishing and having life with him is by becoming poor in spirit. It is by learning to mourn over their own sinfulness. It is. It's by being broken. Wholeheartedness begins with us embracing our weakness and saying rather than live a plastic spiritual life of faking it until I make it, I am going to acknowledge where I am. I am going to come before God in weakness, 
spiritually depleted and say, God, though I am weak, you are strong. Wholeheartedness begins with us living in such a way that it says that my righteousness is not found in myself, but it is in Christ alone. Wholeheartedness is living with integrity before God, saying, God, I am not Lord of my, my own life. You are Lord of my life, and I need you to make me whole. I hunger and I thirst after righteousness. I seek your face like a deer who pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you in a dry and a lonely world. My question for you today is, do you have a right to a scripture, or are you compromising on what God has said through Christ Jesus? Are you picking and choosing what brings God to light, or are you looking at what God has written and said, Lord, you have written it, and it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that I will not live as a slave to sin, but as your son. My question to you is, is our, do you have the right to prove yourself as one who, if you're a Christian, who is saved by grace through faith? And that your only hope is in the grace of God. For it is what saves you, Titus says, but it's also what sanctifies you. My question for you is, do you have the right view of your Savior? Jesus is the one who has come to give you new life a new hope and a new heart. Text says that, but I tell you, everyone who is angry, sorry, one verse, one, one section up, verse 19. Therefore, whoever, for I truly, I, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of the letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. And the good news is that Jesus has accomplished all things. And that he has perfectly fulfilled the law by going up Golgotha's hill, by dying on the cross, by taking upon him your sin and my sin. And that our righteousness is found in us placing our faith in a buried and crucified Savior who is also resurrected and who is now our mediator sitting on the right hand. And it is this Jesus who is our pattern. It is this Jesus who is our pardon. And it is this Jesus who gives us power to live lives wholeheartedness. Christian, my encouragement to you is as we travel through the next two chapters over the next few weeks, man, is to let God do his thing in your heart. James chapter 1, verse 19 through 22 uh, encourages us to not be uh, do hearers of the words, but to be doers of the word. It encourages us to put away all moral filth, and he says, humbly receive the implanted word of God with meekness. God, over the next few weeks, wants to challenge all of us by going deeper into our hearts, by going into our motives. By, by searching those, those hidden areas of our hearts and by beginning to clean it out so that it won't be said of us that, that we are whitewashed tombs, look good on the outside, but on the inside, we are dry man's bones. 
My invitation to you is to come back to God, come back to his word with a freshness, expecting renewal, expecting Jesus to speak to us. Jesus says, bless our pure eyes today. They are the ones who see. Perhaps if your communion with Jesus is dry, perhaps if your prayer life is stale and non-existent, perhaps if you have lost your first love and you are not on fire for him, perhaps it's because you are not living in wholeheartedness. And God is calling you to radical abandonment. God is calling you to not be conformed to the image and the pattern of this world, but to allow your mind once again to be renewed and to be transformed. James chapter 4, God calls the, the church, he calls them spiritual adulterers. He says that you fight and you murder one another and you are covetousness. And he calls them spiritual adulterers. And then he tells them the cure to their adultery. He says, but I give, but he gives more grace. And what God is saying to you today that he is not sitting in heaven. To you, believer, as your judge to condemn you, but he's sitting in heaven welcoming you home, saying, come back to me, receive this grace, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hands, you double-minded. He says, read your garments and weep and mourn that you may have a time of refreshment. God is calling you to pursue him today like never before, to say enough with the apathetic pursuit, enough with casually following him, to give him all of you. Not only do we reject new ideas, but honestly, y'all want to know what a lot of us reject? You want to know what a lot of us are scared of? A new version of us. What if I no longer have that, that secret sin to depend on when things don't go my way? What if I still have this, this thinking way of, of thinking that I'm used to, to living with? What, what will life be like? I'm going to tell you what life will be like. It will be, it will be abundant. Jesus said that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. So I've come to give you life, you life more abundantly. I'll give you joy that the world didn't give. The world can't take away a joy that surpasses your circumstances. A joy that, that money can't buy, money can't explain. A, a joy that is rooted in a, in a fountain of living water that never runs dry. He says, come to me, all you who are laboring, heavy laden, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to Jesus, just as you are. Wounded and weary and heavy burdened. Come to Jesus. Experience. Experience. Experience what it means to be a new creation. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is talking to the disciples. 
They're having their, their last meal before his crucifixion. And I want you to pay attention to what he says. This isn't by happenstance. This isn't by accident. The Bible is absolutely marvelous. It's written by over 40 different authors over a span of a couple, of a few thousand years. And they're all pointing to one person, and his name is Jesus. And notice what Jesus does. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take it and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink it from all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Where's that language? Where have you heard the language that? In Jeremiah chapter 31. Jesus is fulfilling that promised covenant that, that Jeremiah spoke about hundreds of years before. That forgiveness of sin would be offered. That God will give a people a new heart in exchange for a heart of the flesh. Ezekiel 36. But I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So every Sunday when we take this meal, we take this meal to celebrate that Jesus is a promise keeper. That he came and he did exactly what the Father sent him to do. He died so that you and I can have forgiveness of sin. So that we would not live lives of condemnation, guilt, or shame. But that we can live life as it's meant to be lived. Free in the presence of an almighty God. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. As kingdom citizens. Those who know that their identity is found in Him. And it's all happened at that cross. At the cross. Where I first saw the light. The burden of my sins is rolled away. It's there by faith that I receive my sight. And now I am happy all the day. Here, soldier, I'm take a piece of bread. We dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. If you're not a Christian, I implore you to, to pursue Jesus, to, to come, to commit to learning about him. He is absolutely amazing. He is both the Lord of everything, and yet he is gentle. The Bible says the rules read, he will not break. He is all-powerful, and yet he is intimately near. He's life. He himself is life. Let's pray. Jesus, you are absolutely amazing and astonishing. You see us, you know us, you love us, and you call us yours. You are both our Lord and our Savior and our older brother. To him who is, who was, and who is to come. Amen.